Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. But I am a Christian first, a conservative second, and a Republican third, and I praise Jesus. And welcome to the Second Reading Podcast for the week of May 31st. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. I'm joined by my colleague, Josh Blank. And today we're here to talk about Texas suing the federal government, this time over bathroom policies, and about the runoff elections in Texas last week. So Josh, Attorney General Ken Paxton announced last week that he was joining the AGs of 11 other states to sue the Obama administration, force of habit maybe, and the Justice Department over the administration's directives to school districts regarding facilities for transgender students. Now this is the latest chapter in an ongoing saga. Right. I mean, this is uh, Ken Paxton hasn't been in office that long. He's been in the news a lot, but he hasn't been in office that long. But this is actually his ninth lawsuit against the Obama administration uh, since, I guess, 2000. And when did he take office? 2000. Uh, 15. For 15. Yeah. It feels like longer in some ways. It does ways. feel like, well, as the lawsuits pile up, in, it seems like. Yeah, in my head, I'm like, that time. can't be right. But yeah, it does feel like he's been here a long time. So that's Paxton's ninth lawsuit. But actually, uh, Greg Abbott, his prede- predecessor, now the governor, filed 31 lawsuits against the Obama administration. So in total, since Obama took office in 2008, Texas has filed 40, that's right, 40 lawsuits against the federal government. Uh, they you should know, have like an anniversary party. Yeah, no, I mean, when they get to 50, there should be a, there should definitely be a party. Uh, you know, Greg Abbott was was really fond of saying on the campaign trail some versions to the effect of, you know, I go into the office in the morning, I sue Barack Obama, and then I go home. That was one of his big lines when he was running for governor. And an applause line. It was a big applause <laughs> we line. Should add. So let's hear uh, let's hear what Ken Paxson had to say on Fox and Friends this weekend about uh, this lawsuit. And so this is, in my opinion, a solution in search of a problem. This guideline doesn't address any particular problem. They have not been very specific about what they're trying to solve. This opens the door for all kinds of issues with men deciding one day that they want to be women and then switching back the next day. It's just it doesn't answer any particular question. I think we'll bracket just for the moment the attorney general's views on sexuality and gender identity and perhaps just go back a bit and and make sure people know that this is in response to directives issued a couple of weeks ago by the actually their guidelines rather than directives, although they were taken as directives uh, by the Obama administration via the Justice Department on the rights of transgender students to uh, access to facilities in public schools. Right. And so the idea here was that, you know, the Obama administration said that that uh, public schools would need to make facilities available to students based on their gender identity, not necessarily the gender that they were born with. It wasn't a directive, it was guidelines, but with that came an implicit threat that if you wanted to create guidelines that went counter to what the federal government was saying, you had the possibility of losing federal funding, which is where why this becomes a potential legal fight. Yeah, and, and it, we didn't include the clip because it would have been too long, But Attorney General Paxton, in response to a question on that same Fox and Friends appearance, was really direct about saying that that was what was at stake here, that school districts depended on the billions of dollars in in federal funding, 
and that they were and that the the state's attorney generals were being protective of that funding. And there's a there's an interesting implicit kind of tension here between fighting the federal government to make sure that the federal government continues to give you money. Um, But that's obviously not. This is not the only case of that, but it's lurking out there in a lot of ways as we look at a political context here that when we look at this history of 40 lawsuits over the last several now gubernatorial administrations, mostly under Governor Perry, although there certainly were lawsuits before the Republicans even were in power in the state. But as we look at that history, that really does pose the way that Texas wants to Texas political leaders are prone to challenging the authority of the national government. Right. And, and why wouldn't they? I mean, when we look at our own polling and the University of Texas, Texas Tribune poll, uh, you know, in February 2015, we found that 77 percent of uh, Texas Republican voters hold an unfavorable view of the federal government. Ninety percent uh, disapprove of Obama's job performance and 90 percent have an unfavorable view of the president. So if you're a, you know, a Texas Republican, a statewide office holder, Having the opportunity to make the Obama administration a pinata of yours is something you're going to take any day of the week. Right. right? I was going to go with low-hanging fruit as a kind of foreshadowing, but we'll we'll, we'll wait on that. Um, yeah, I, I think that this tells us a lot about the current state of public opinion and the very concrete ways that we see in the poll numbers you cite, and also talks of you know points us to the the overall political culture in the state, the political history of the state. There's a, a real attraction and, and rooted set of beliefs about limited government in the state that go back to the very beginning of Texas. And people sort this out in different ways. We sort it out in our textbook talking about the combination of the Western frontier culture and the Southern culture that's shaped by the Civil War and the resistance of the Confederacy to the national government and the, the cultural memory of that as a war not about slavery, but about states' rights. Right. So, I mean, there's a, there's a long history of resistance to any sort of sense of federal overreach. But then this is sort of the perfect storm because you also have sort of, you know, progressive social mores being uh, foisted upon Texas by the federal government. This is just it's, this is low hanging fruit. This is well, too easy. Well, since we're just being, you know, uh, <laughs> profligate with metaphors, you know, somehow when you mention the perfect storm, I'm imagining the film version in which Bill Pax- in which Ken Paxton is played by George Clooney steering the ship of state in the <laughs> against the, the the storming the storms of the federal government. Metaphor and large notions of uh, kind of abstract and theoretical notions of. Uh, public opinion and political culture aside, I mean, this is a very concrete illustration of how patterns in public opinion, patterns in public culture, in political culture can really converge to shape the incentives and the behaviors of political actors. As we say, for all our, you know, talk about low-hanging fruit or whatever metaphor we're going to use, these factors manifest themselves in very concrete reasons for political actors like the attorney general, um, both the current attorney general and the attorney general before him, to make these concrete decisions and to get payoffs from them. You know, the other 31 times that the federal government got sued in uh, in in this time period we're talking about was by Attorney General Abbott, who then used that 
as part of his campaign and part of his public profile to get elected governor. And that was one of the big advantages he had actually going into that election, because, you know, if, if the if Texas is initiating a lawsuit, it's there's discretion there. The attorney general gets to make a decision about when and what to sue about. You know, the object, the federal government, we know, as we've already said, is, is sort of negatively viewed by most Texas Republicans, most of the voters who are going to put these guys in office. But in addition, they get to pick and choose which battles reflect most favorably on, on them. It might not even be the ones that they have the best chance of winning, but it's the one where they can go out and say, well, I took a stand on transgender bathroom policies or voter ID laws or, you know, the Ten Commandments, uh, you know, on the state capitol. Right. And that's something that you're going to hear about again and again and again. And you do hear less about, for example, uh, during General Abbott's term as attorney general, there were other less dramatic things or plenty of dramatic things like the, the, the cultural and social issues you're talking about, talking about. But there are also lawsuits about environmental policy that are less sexy in a way. Um, and if you think about what's lying beneath part of the current lawsuit over transgender policy, we've talked about federal funding. That's a, a little more complex as an issue to talk about. Um, and is there, it's much easier to, to frame it in terms of these broader issues, even though the payoffs are very direct. Well, and right. And if we do end up hearing about, you know, when, when Ken Paxton is up for reelection, uh, if he's up for reelection and we hear about this again, this is not going to be about federal funding for education. This is going to be about federal directives over your local schools. Exactly. And that's something he's more than happy to say he's defending the direct, you know, the directives of, you know, basically the preferences of local school districts and the parents and protecting the children. It's not going to be about federal funding when they go ahead into the actual campaign season and get into the politics of how you transform this into a political issue. Right. And, I, you know, I, I don't think it's too cynical to also note it would actually be a little bit of malpractice to if we excluded the fact that Attorney General Paxson is also under the gun right now, having been accused of uh, some wrongdoing, shall we say? Wrongdoing, couple wrong, couple instances, couple instances of wrongdoing. A couple different instances of wrongdoing, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a later right. podcast. Many of the headlines in the state press have really been about some of these political problems that Attorney General Paxton has been having, this is a very welcome change of subject and shift of media attention for him. Um, again, even as we think about these notions of the, of very, very concrete political choices. Now, speaking of political choices, our other topic today are um, focuses on the runoff elections that happened in Texas last week and a brief look ahead to the fall and what these, what these elections tell us and don't tell us, for that matter, about the fall elections that will be coming up in November, that is the general elections. Right. Now, most of you were probably driving around over the last couple of weeks and you saw the, the vote here signs up. And, and you and like most people, you probably thought, vote for what? What is what, what are we voting for? Didn't we just vote in the, in the primary election for president if you even voted in that, which most people didn't? But let's say you did. You were driving around. You were seeing the signs. You were wondering what was going on. Well, last week was runoff week. Right. So, so what, what is that? Well, so the runoffs happen be when a candidate in a primary election doesn't receive 50% or no candidate receives 50% or more of the vote. And so if, if no candidate receives 50% plus one vote, literally, then there has to be a runoff that is scheduled at varying periods, but usually at a decent distance after the primary election. So the primary elections this time were held early in March, and the runoffs weren't until last week. So you had 
a two-month-plus gap between the primary elections and the runoffs. So the runoffs are to decide who is actually going to be the party's candidate, in a sense, winnowing the field. And these happen in in state-level races, obviously not in the presidential race. So had they happened in the presidential race, we would have had to have a runoff in that race, too. But this is state races only. This is a matter of of laws set at the state level. What's the what's the history behind some of that? Well, the history is interesting in Texas given that and and really points to Texas's peculiar to some degree, not singular, but peculiar pattern of one-party rule. That is the for for many years in the wake of the Civil War, Texas was dominated by the by the Democratic Party. The Republican Party was associated with the Civil War and its outcome and in particular Reconstruction. And once Reconstruction, the period of military supervision of politics and government in the South was over, the Democratic Party was basically the only game in town. And when I say the only game in town, it was the only game in town. We think about Texas is dominated by Republicans right now, and it is pretty much, but not in the way that it was in in the late 19th and really through the first half of the 20th century, where there were at certain points, no Republicans in the state legislature. Right. And if there were, they were in single figures. And so there is a, a history so of party the, rule here. So why the 50% threshold then, right? right? Well, the 50% threshold is because you do need to get a clear, you know, you you need to sort out all of that competition at the level of the primary, right? right? It's not going to happen in the general election because there's no party competition in the general election. So you have to come out, come up with rules to thin the field and produce a winner. Some sort of majority candidate. Right. right? That you can, that you can at least appears to have majority rule. Some kind of majority. Right. right. A majority that gets winnowed out through, through different sections. And so, obviously we're not discussing, you know, the very complex and real racial aspects to this too which also layer into that but yeah certainly i mean uh, you know having to do first with the with the exclusion of of african americans from voting and the in terms of the two party rule piece the fact that the first the the, the first african americans elected in the wake of the civil war were in uh, were typically republicans so long and short of it is the reason you saw those signs last you know last week was because of the civil war <laughs> well, something like that. Something like that. That's <laughs> the short version. Maybe the Civil War and Reconstruction. Yeah, uh, that's not a multiple choice question necessarily. So, so why are we even still talking about these these runoff elections then? Well, you know, in Texas, there were a few seats that were interesting, had either interesting elements for one reason or the other, and and they do tell us something about the state of, comp- of party competition in the state right now. For one thing, many of these. Uh, uh, of the races where there were runoffs in this election cycle will not be competitive in the general election. I think maybe one seat. Right. I I looked this up. So there were 22 total runoffs. So this is across congressional districts, Senate districts, House districts, you know, State Board of Education, et cetera. Of the 22 total runoffs, only one of those races is expected to be competitive come fall. Right. Right. So for all intents and purposes, the other... 21 races, that's deciding who is winning that election. Right. Now, the the other thing that you really note about these and is probably the defining characteristic of runoffs elections in Texas in the contemporary period is that turnout is miserable. So you look at the, the point you just made that these are the races that wind up actually in a lot of cases determining who's going to occupy office in a de facto sense. On the other hand, 
almost nobody votes in these elections. I mean, we started with that premise that people are driving around going, what election when they see the signs? Well, right. So you're probably part of the 99% of people who say, <laughs> what election, and just keep driving. So for instance, there were two, uh, two statewide races for the Texas Railroad Commission, one on the Republican side and one on the Democratic side. On the Republican side, the turnout was 2.65% of eligible voters, actually registered voters, to be clear. And on the Democratic side, it was 1.32%. In two of the congressional districts where there were where there were runoffs, and again, these aren't expected to be competitive in the fall, so these were basically Republicans picking who would represent them in Congress. The turnout rate in congressional district 15 was 0.4 percent. Right, so less than one percent. Right, and in congressional district 18, it was 0.37 percent. So right. this is this is how this is you know a defining feature of Texas politics is our low turnout, and sort of what happens without competition. And to give you a sense of just how what what it looks like when there is competition, uh, Congressional District 19, which is uh, was an open congressional seat due to a congressional retirement in West Texas, safe Republican seat. That was a hot race. Uh, there were media buys. There were a couple of reasonably well-funded candidates in that race, which was really the high bar in turnout near as I can tell for that race. Less than 7%, 6.7% voted in that race, a total of 47 1,092 votes cast to determine the next congressman in that in that area, essentially. Right. So so on the one hand, that's sort of a defining feature. And then, you know, there are a couple of races, though, that were interesting for other reasons. You want to talk about those a little? Right. So let's start with the one that's interesting in a kind of... Interesting weird? Interesting. We'll call it interesting weird. So this was a uh, the Republican runoff to fill a state board of education seat in District Nine, which is up in the northeast, in the east corner of the state. It's really yeah, almost corner. defining northeast, kind of upper east Texas, right there. That's part piney woods and part and part plains. Uh, and in this race, the most controversial candidate was one Mary Lou Bruner, who almost won. She actually got about forty eight percent of the vote plus a little more in the uh, in the in the first election and so she almost actually got in there and then ended up going into the runoff and then all this stuff started coming out about what an interesting person she is yeah she she had she had articulated what she, we should say some interesting opinions about the president in particular idiosyncratic idiosyncratic is a good word and that you know she was she was opining that in his youth, that the president had a drug habit and that he was a gay prostitute to fund that drug habit. Now, the national the national press really picked up on this. She made it um, on some of the late night comedy shows. She was interviewed in public radio. She got a lot of attention. And, I, you know, I think some of this is, I mean, she earned it. Yes. There, there's no doubt about that. It's definitely earned media. But there's also the sense that the national media, I mean, we joke all the time about how it seems like the New York Times editorial staff has basically an app where they push a button that produces the, oh, those crazy Texans, what are they doing now uh, stories. Nonetheless, uh, Ms. Bruner did did help. So let's let's roll some audio on her response to questions about her views on, on the president's past and his his habits. If he's on drugs, then how did he pay for them? There's two ways that people on welfare pay for drugs. They, they prostitute themselves or they steal. 
It's funny that you say that about you know kind of the national media in Texas, and then we can't help but play the audio too. Right. It's well, just it's just too much. I think what's interesting about this race, in some ways, it's like the best and worst of Texas. In some ways, right? You sort of have these sort of out there, outlandish comments from someone who almost won an election to help determine what children in Texas learn. Right. Right. On the other hand. She ended up getting, you know, soundly defeated in the runoff, like, you know, 62 percent, you know, by, to like 30 percent or something. So is a, a certain dodge the bullet. There was a certain I think once people learned bullet. a little bit more about some of these views, they kind of, I don't know, figured out maybe we shouldn't we shouldn't put this woman in charge of, you know, setting policy for education. Yeah. And, I, and, like, I, and I think one of the other things that put some some heat into this race is that that was an open seat that had been occupied by one of the moderate Republicans in the state, Thomas Ratliff, um, who had been besieged by more, so we say, ideological Republicans in the state that were focused on the school board. And so there was a, a little bit of, uh, of attention on that, I mean, relative to the fact that nobody's paying attention. Right, or voting. But, but, in, you know, but insider-wise, there were people that were looking at, and I think in the, in the final estimation made an effort to make sure that her story got out there and that voter the such voters that did show up uh had a thorough idea of what she was about okay to move on to a couple of a couple of races that were a little more mundane um but but still interesting in what they tell us senate district one in that same geographical area that northeast corner of texas um was, was a runoff between conservatives uh Brian Hughes and and David Simpson had both been in the House, and they were both, you couldn't call either one of those candidates anything other than a staunch conservative, but conservatives of very different yeah, stripes, very different. and so there was a lot of attention paid that race inside Austin political circles to see who was going to win that race. Uh, Brian Hughes had been something of a, a insurgent Republican in a way. He had challenge Speaker Joe Strauss for the speakership uh, a while back, left the House to run for the Senate seat. David Simpson was really a conservative who marched to the beat of his own drum. Uh, he got very ideologically libertarian, Right. Uh, often went against the republic, any Republican establishment he could find, but including even the conservative establishment who found him a little libertarian for... Right. for for their taste, and Hughes won that race decisively, and it was a uh, was very close. Hughes barely avoided a runoff, but that was a that was a race that the the folks in Austin were watching pretty closely. And then also in Senate District Twenty Four, which encompasses both uh, even a little bit of North Travis County, and it goes up through Marble Falls and then reaches into Abilene. Um, Don Buckingham beat Susan King. Um, Buckingham was somebody that had been on active in state Republican politics. Susan King was a sitting House member, herself a little bit iconoclastic. Her husband is a doctor who was active in the Texas Medical Association. And, you know, I misspoke. I said Don Buckingham was active in state Republican. She was on the board of the Texas Medical Association, but itself a very entrenched and major player in state politics and in the in the Republican Party. Um, Don Buck, and that was a race that was to replace a senator who had left, a state senator who had left under a little bit of pressure. Troy Frazier and, and Senator Frazier had been a very major player in the business politics in the Senate. He had had chairmanships of business and industry and of 
natural resources, both committees that are very important to folks like the oil industry, the chemical industry, manufacturing, major utilities. So that was also a race that got a lot of attention. And Buckingham wound up winning that race by a pretty large margin. So I know that I, I mean, I was following these races partially just because they were being written about a lot. But I mean, was was the interest in this basically, you know, about sort of where the Texas Senate was going to be in the next session on on ideology? Like, is it going to I mean, because in the end, I mean, the Texas Senate is very conservative. Some people would like to say it's the most conservative it's ever been. I don't know how to how you'd say that or how you would know. But there's sort of this idea of, you know, we're putting these two potential new people in. Is the interest just, you know, where the Senate's going to end up? Is it about, you know, the lieutenant governor and his coalition? I mean, what was what was driving the interest, at least on the inside? Well, I think on the inside, there was no doubt that no matter who won either one of those races, right, that I mean, they were going to contribute to a Senate that is already very conservative and already, if not firmly under the control of the lieutenant governor, certainly amenable to following the directions right. of the lieutenant governor. I mean, David Simpson might have been a little bit Yeah, I, I, I think unknown. Simpson and King both were seen as slightly, you know, Simpson is very idiosyncratic. Right. King is a bit idiosyncratic, and that probably has more to do with some things in her personal life recently. Um, for the most part, though, this was really an in... Uh, the attention was about process and right. gradations of policy. Right. So what... So what broad, you know, what what broad lessons do we learn from the these Texas runoffs, if any? You know, I, I don't think there's a lot of broad lessons to be taken from this politically. I think the different factions of the Republican Party won here and lost there. There's no clear kind of outcome in terms of did the outsiders beat the insiders? These were all pretty much insider fights among different factions. I think what it tells us about the legislature coming up is that we're not going to we're going to see more of the same right at least based on the republican politics of this and we're not going to see major changes in the senate the changes that we were going to see we already know it's really basically about Frazier exiting and who the lieutenant governor moves to fill that kind of spot in the legislature very much insider regulatory stuff so I think with that uh, nod towards the inside, we'll wrap it up for today. Uh, we will be back next week with more from Second Reading. I'm Jim Henson signing off for myself and my colleague, Josh Blank. We'll see you all next week. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project and the Project 2021 Development Studio at the University of Texas at Austin.